0: Welcome to the teaching and preaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.secondbaptist-mtv.com or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. with me. Father, we want to, in these next moments, turn our hearts' attention toward you and to your word. And we recognize, Lord, that we need the Spirit's help in order to do that, and so we ask for your Spirit now to come in these moments and to attend to the preaching of your word. Would you incline our hearts to hear? May we receive uh, the word this morning as truth. As life-giving, Lord, would you work in a powerful way this morning, writing these truths onto our hearts, opening our eyes to behold more of your glory and of who you've made us to be, and the life that you intend for us to live, to live wisely in these evil days. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen amen. Well, if you, if you haven't already, please open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We'll be looking at all of chapter 4 this morning. We are continuing our series through Ecclesiastes. I wonder, what is your favorite book of the Bible? What is your favorite book? Perhaps for you, Musician, you poet, emotive types, maybe it's the book of Psalms. Maybe for you, type A, personality, list makers, it's the book of Proverbs. How about you Calvinists? Well, it'd be Romans, right? Maybe Ephesians. And you conspiracy theorists, it's definitely Revelation, right? (laughs) It's a joke, okay? Okay. But I wonder what your favorite book would be and and I wonder if anyone would say the book of Ecclesiastes because that would be weird right I came across this article in Christianity Today written by A. Packer who died just this last year author of Knowing God he writes this he says Christians like to quiz each other about their favorite book in the Bible finding out how people experience scripture is a natural interest to us. When asked which Bible book is my favorite, I say Ecclesiastes. Should people raise their eyebrows and ask why, I say the preacher is a realist about the many ways in which this world gives us a rough ride. But while temperamentally inclined to pessimism and cynicism, I think he was kept from falling into either of those craters of despair by a strong theology of joy. you have a strong theology of joy? Packer goes on to say, Looking back to my late teens conversion, I see myself as having received from Ecclesiastes wisdom that I needed badly. When Jesus Christ laid hold of me, I was already well on my way to becoming a cynic. Cynics, he says, are people who have grown skeptical about the goodness of life, feeling disillusioned, discouraged, and hurt by their experience of life. Their pain pride forbids them to think that others might be wiser and doing better than they themselves have done. Mixed-up teens slip easily into cynicism, and that is what I was doing. How, then, should we formulate this theology of joy that runs through and undergirds this entire book? Packer asks. He says it is by recognizing the potential for joy in everyday activities and relationships being too proud or too yeah too proud to enjoy the enjoyable is a very ugly shortcoming and one that calls for immediate correction let it be acknowledged as i had to learn long ago that, that discovering how under god ordinary things can bring joy is the cure Cynicism. This world can make us cynical, can it? Can make us pessimists, can make us cynics. And over the last few weeks, we've seen that Solomon, the preacher here, he's a realist, isn't he? He, he paints for us a very honest picture about life under the sun, as he calls it, and he he doesn't sugarcoat it at all, does he? he's a he's a realist he's very honest and he's honest that life here in this world is hard it's frustrating vanity of vanities and perhaps as this wiser older sage now is looking back on his life Solomon he's giving us here wisdom based on his own life experiences based on his observations about life in this fallen world but what we've seen as a result of his life experiences is that far from making him cynical, far from making him a pessimist, depressed, biblical equivalent to an Eeyore, right? What we've seen is that actually Solomon is a man of deep joy. In fact, right alongside this theme of vanity in life is also this constant theme we've seen of joy. But Solomon, he doesn't find joy in the places we might expect. He doesn't find it in the places that this world looks to for pleasure or for joy or for meaning. No, he finds it in a relationship with God and enjoying the good gifts that God has given him. Ordinary things as Packer says. Things we might not expect. Things like food and drink and work. Chapter three, verse 13, we saw last week, this is God's gift to man. And so this morning, we find yet another unexpected gift from God in the life he's given us here under the sun. Another gift that Solomon observes, one that perhaps many of us take for granted, one we may have little time for, some perhaps don't think we need, And one, if we're not careful, we can miss out on. And that good gift we see here is the gift of companionship. It's the gift of friendships, relationships, community. If you remember back in in, in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, God says to Adam, if you remember, he says, it is not good for man to be alone. And you remember this was instituted before the fall, right? Right? So the only thing that wasn't good in this perfect utopian paradise that God had made was that man was alone. Friends, you and I, we were made for relationships. We were created for community with one another because we were made in the image of God who himself is a relational being and we were created to reflect that in our relationships with one another. We were created for community. And this is, listen, this is not only true in marriage. This is not only true even in friendships. I think this is especially true within the community of the church. That when God saves us, he doesn't save us in isolation. He saves us to become part of a community of people, to become part of a body, to become part of a a family of faith. And that community, close connectedness, with others in the church, it isn't optional for the Christian, as many might think in this individualistic world in which we live. No, it's it's necessary in order for us to enjoy life and and to truly live for what counts in this life under the sun. And so I think Solomon has much wisdom for us here and and even for our church today. And so we come to chapter 4 this morning where Solomon, notice, is examining here these themes of loneliness and companionship. Is loneliness a problem today? You bet it is. In a world of a thousand Facebook friends and you feel all alone. Now it might be hard at first to, to s- sort of find any kind of unifying theme in this chapter, right? As, as Trace read it a moment ago, maybe you're thinking this seems more just kind of like a, a grab bag things sort of all over the place but notice how the themes of loneliness and isolation and companionship run through this entire chapter. Notice there in verse 1 he says the oppressed have no one to comfort them. They're alone. Or verse 8, notice this wealthy workaholic who lives nine to five amassing more and more possessions, he has no friends and family to share it with. Look there, verse 8. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. He's all alone. Then at the end, verse 13, we end our passage at the level of a king who is utterly alone on top. He has isolated and insulated himself from everyone and then in verses 9 to 12 forming really the, the heart and, and soul of this passage Solomon here he's going to focus on the blessing and the necessity of companionship and community so let's, let's look at this text under four headings this morning four observations Solomon makes here about the need for relationships about and observing areas of life under the sun number one Observing oppression, verses 1 to 3, observing oppression. Number 2, observing our work, verses 4 to 8, our work. Number 3, observing loneliness, verses 9 to 12, loneliness. And then finally, observing humility, verses 13 to 16. And we'll make, try to make application along the way. So Solomon, he wants us here to enjoy this life God has given us under the sun But he wants us to enjoy it together in relationships, in community, for a meaningful life. This is what a meaningful life is going to look like. First, observing oppression. Verses 1 to 3. The the theme here of these verses is pretty easy to spot. In fact, Solomon, he mentions that word oppressed or oppression three times. Notice just there in verse 1. He says in verse 1, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. and There was no one to comfort them. So Solomon, notice, he, he is observing, he's looking out at life in this world, life under the sun, and he sees oppression in the world. He sees evil and injustice in the world. In fact, if you remember last week, notice in chapter 3, verse 16, it ends on this note of oppression and injustice. Look there, verse 16. He said, moreover, chapter 3, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness even there was wickedness. So in other words, he sees a world that's full of injustice. Verse 1, notice, I saw the tears of the oppressed. He, he, he observes here the heartache and the sorrow of the oppressed. Verse 1, on the side of their oppressors, there was power. Which speaks here of the, the, the abuse of power by these oppressors here. So th- this is the powerful who are oppressing the powerless. Scripture speaks regularly about this oppression, doesn't it? What's oppression? You're hearing that word a lot in the news today. What is it? Well, it's often associated in the Bible with cheating one's neighbor, extortion, stealing, defrauding, robbing someone. It's, It's the mistreatment of power against those who are vulnerable, the poor. The widow, the orphan, the the refugee. It's it's denying people justice. It's denying people rights. That's oppression. And notice Solomon says that this is just life. Under the sun. Verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. That that sadly this is just the way the world is. Right? That life is full, history is full of these kinds of things. Maybe, maybe even in your own past, you've experienced some of these kinds of things or seen these kinds of things. Things like genocide. Things like the killing of the unborn. Injustice written right into the laws of the land. I mean, have you seen what's going on with the blowback from Texas? I mean, God help us. This is ludicrous. These could be things like sex trafficking, terrorist attacks, sex abuse, child abuse, physical abuse. I mean, we could go on and on. These these are just awful, awful things under the sun. And Solomon, he isn't trying to expound on oppression and injustice in the world. No, he's simply stating it here as a matter of fact. This is just... Reality. This is just the way the world is. It's full of oppression. It's full of injustice. In fact, notice just how bad it is, verses 2 and 3. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done to the Son. In other words, it's so bad, death is preferable. Solomon says, it's better to be dead than to experience it. Or or never, he says, to have been born at all than to experience this kind of oppression and this kind of injustice. One commentator says, the happiest state of all is not even to exist in the first place. Oh my. Does that statement shock you? I mean, have you noticed how the Bible is just real? And it does not gloss over the tragic, horrible elements of life. No. And Solomon says, it would be better for the oppressed to have never been born at all. And from one perspective, he's right, isn't he? If man's existence is only in this present life, If there is no view of eternity, if there is no view of God, if there is no view of judgment day, then it's better to never have been born at all. And so Solomon, he recognizes that living in this world that is full of injustice, life isn't always fair. But what's his point here? Here's his point. It isn't so much that these injustices will one day be righted in the end although they will. They will be righted in the end. We saw it last week, chapter 3, verse 17. Judgment day is coming. There is a day when God will judge this world and in chapter 12 even, the very last verse of this book, we see Solomon says, for God will bring every deed into judgment whether good or evil, every secret thing, he's gonna bring it to judgment one day. There is judgment day coming, but that's not his point here in chapter 4. No, here's his point, it's simply that those who are being oppressed, those who are receiving injustice, are suffering alone. They're in isolation. In fact, look at verse 1. He says it twice. Behold the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. Again, verse 1. There was no one to comfort them. they suffering alone. So what's his point? His emphasis is they have no comforters. They have no one to comfort them. In other words, Solomon is saying, isolation increases the pain of oppression. Isolation increases the pain of oppression. It's bad enough that they're oppressed. What makes it even worse is they are oppressed and suffering all alone. They have no one to speak for them. They have no one to advocate for them. They have no one to support them and to comfort them. No, they're completely alone. James chapter one, verse 27. James says of the the people of God, he says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father. Real faith, true religion is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, in their oppression. In other words, we should be doing what Jesus says in Matthew 25, you remember verse 35, where he says, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, welcome the stranger, comfort the hurting, visit the imprisoned. We should be, church, a people who care about the oppressed, we care about the vulnerable, we care about injustices that we see in the world, and we should pray for and support, even as a church, this kind of work that seeks to care for those in our world who are oppressed and who need the comfort of the Savior. And let me just say that if if those words scare you, words like injustice or advocating for the oppressed, if those kind of words scare you, they make you uneasy, just make sure that your worldview is shaped more, not by what you're hearing on the news about justice, but by the Bible. Those are biblical categories. Justice. Advocating for the oppressed—that's what Christians do. And what do they need? They need comfort. They need the comfort of Christ. They need the comfort of God's people. They need a church family. They need—they need community. And and I pray that we would be people that move towards them, and not only them, but also those within even our own church. So just think about it this way. Let's make sure that no one, no one is suffering in isolation. No one is suffering alone. Who is there around you who needs to be comforted? Who perhaps is suffering alone? Who can you give the gift of comfort to today? And simply even just just be a presence. You don't have to say anything. Just be a presence in their lives so that they're not alone. Because what many of us enjoy every day, many people enjoy many people, it's absent in their lives. They're alone. Which leads Solomon, notice, to a second observation. Look there. And interestingly, notice he turns then to this theme of work and toil. Look there, so number two, observing our work, verses four to eight. Now again, at first, it, it seems a bit random here, sort of out of place based on what we've just seen. In fact, Solomon, he, he's, he's touched on our toil several times already, hasn't he? In this, in this book, chapter 1, we saw it, verse 3. We saw it in chapter 2, verse 18. Even last week, notice in verse 22, this theme of toil and work. He says, I, I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. So He's already spoken of it, and here again, notice in verses 4-8, to eight, he, he brings it up again. Why does Solomon talk so much about our work? Well, think about it. All of us, whether you work in an office or you stay at home with kids, every single one of us spend the majority of our lives working. Don't we? And so, if, if we fail to get this view of work rightly, if we fail to understand it correctly, then we're going to end up getting a very large portion of our lives wrong, right? So Solomon wants to make sure we have a right view of work and a right understanding of our work. And here, in chapter 4, he specifically has in mind how we should think about our work in relationship to other people. In relationship to others. So Solomon, what he's doing here is he's really getting at here the motivation behind your work. He wants us to ask ourselves this morning the question, why do I work? What is it that motivates me to get up and go to work tomorrow? What's motivating you? Have you ever stopped and considered that? Have you ever stopped and asked that from a a heart level? What drives my work? What drives my achievements? Is it for personal gain or is it for the sake of other people? And notice there are four motivations he gives for why we work. Look at these. Three of them are wrong and one of them is the right motivation. Let's look at the, the wrong ones first. Notice first that motivation number one he says is the wrong motivation. He says it's envy. Envy. Look at verse four. He says, Then I saw, so it moves from now oppression to that of work, that all toil and all skill in work come from where? A man's envy of his neighbor. This too is vanity, and a striving after the wind. Solomon says, "I look at the world and I see that the motivation for every man for why they go to work is envy." You agree with Solomon's statement? That all motivation for work is envy of your neighbor? Well, remember what I said a few weeks ago, Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. So while he speaks in absolutes, he's not talking about every single situation, every single circumstance here. Wisdom literature often talks like this, but it is an interesting observation, isn't it? Why do you work so hard? How much of your work is guided by a desire to love God and love your neighbor? Or is it because you want to outdo somebody else? Envy, jealousy. And as Solomon observes the world, he sees envy is what drives the motivation of people in the world, in their work. So it drives the business world, isn't it? It's it's, uh, trying to get ahead, it's trying to climb the corporate ladder, it's competing, jockeying for positions and for raises, right? It's driven by rivalry. It's driven by power. It's driven by status. We want to be the most decorated, the most recognized, the most praised. It's a spirit of envy, Solomon says. And it isn't just true out in, in the world. This is also true even among Christians, isn't it? This is true even, even within the church. To, to be driven By jealousy of one another? To be driven by selfish ambition? Remember what Paul says in in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. That's envy. But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Paul's saying there is to be an other's focus in all of our relationships. And it may not just come in the form of, of, of jobs and raises. Do you ever wish you had somebody else's life? Somebody else's possessions, somebody else's family or, or, or their, their, their car or their house or their gifts or their abilities? It's envy. And as Christians, we should be a people who are able to rejoice in the success and prosperity of other people, right? And listen, this this motivation here of envy, it will keep you from healthy relationships in your life. It it won't make you a good friend. Proverbs chapter 40, or 14 verse 30, excuse me, says envy makes the bones rot. It will eat away at you. Proverbs chapter 6 verse 34 says jealousy makes a man furious. Furious. Envy is going to keep you from real, meaningful relationships in your life and with others, especially in the church. So why do you do what you do? Is it driven by a spirit of envy? There's a second wrong motivation for our work Look there, and and really we could say it's a lack of motivation because the second wrong motivation is laziness. Look at verse 5. So in verse 4, he shows us the envious person. Verses 6 to 8, he's going to show us, as we'll see, the workaholic. But here at verse 5, he shows us the sluggard. Look at verse 5. The fool folds his hands. Meaning it won't work. This guy isn't motivated at all. He's, he's lazy. Scripture says a lot about laziness, too. Did you know that? Proverbs chapter 6, let me give you a few. Verse 9 says, How long will you lie there? Maybe you should use these on your teenagers, okay? Or, or your kids. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Just one more nap. And poverty will come upon you like a robber. Laziness will destroy your life. Proverbs 15 says, Verse 19, the way of the sluggard is like a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a level highway. If you're lazy in life, it's going to make life very hard for you. You work hard, level highway. Here's my favorite. Proverbs 22, verse 13, the sluggard says, There is a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. Lazy people make a lot of excuses. Now, let's be clear. He isn't talking here about the working poor who need help and who need assistance. He's talking here about the lazy person who refuses to work. In fact, notice the image there in verse 5. He says, the fool folds his hands and he eats his own flesh. It's the picture here of, of self-cannibalism, right? The the, the the fool, this guy who won't work, or gal, they they, they go to the pantry and they find nothing there and then they have nothing left to eat but themselves. Just to survive. And did you know, laziness, just like envy, is a form of hating your neighbor. Laziness is a form of hating other people. David Gibson, he writes this, he says, laziness is a way of hating your neighbors. Why? Because you have nothing to give them. Instead of embracing life and giving himself to others, this is what Solomon's talking about, the sluggard gives himself to himself, so in the end all he has left is himself. In other words, laziness will ruin relationships as well with other people. Why? Why? because the lazy person is marked by several things. Here's what we see the lazy person is marked by in the Bible. The lazy person, number one, they think everyone else should take care of them. Number two, they get mad when you don't. And number three, they befriend people who will help them only for what they can get out of them. That's the lazy person. So laziness, Solomon says, will keep you from even meaningful relationships in life and living the good life. Healthy relationships. But that's, that's not the only motivation. Look, there's one more wrong one before we look at the healthy one. This one may hit close to home. Motivation number three, the workaholic. The workaholic, or we could say greed. Look at verse six. Better a handful of quietness. Talk about that in a moment. Better a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil. Meaning, the workaholic. He's got both hands full of toil. So the image here is of cupping your hands to get as much as you possibly can. It's greed. This is the guy who is always busy. This is the guy... He's consumed with work. He's consumed with success. He wants more and more and more. He wants wants the bigger house. He wants the bigger bank account. He wants the bigger retirement. And his life then is just full of toil and toil and toil. So he's weighed down by work. He can't rest. But what's striking here is that he has two handfuls. (laughs) He has enough. 6, but it is striving after the wind. You actually find in working yourself to death, you gain nothing. Solomon says, you gain nothing in the end. It's vanity. He's always living for tomorrow. He's always living for the future. And he never stops to consider what he has. He's living for the life he wants, not the life he has. And what's he doing? He is isolating himself from others. He is cutting himself off from meaningful relationships in his life. Because he's always working. He has no time to invest in other people. So he never has time for his family. He never has time for his kids. He never has time for serving and investing in his others. He never has time to serve in the church. Because he's so busy. And he's chasing after the wind, Solomon says. Look there again, verses 7 and 8. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. In other words, the workaholic is working so much he never has time to stop and ask himself the question, who is it all for? What am I really gaining here? What am I living for? Verse 8, for whom am I toiling? Verse 8, this person has no other, either son or brother. He has nobody to share it with. He's alone. And Solomon says, this kind of life, it's vanity. It will add nothing to the meaning of your life. So let me speak to the men in the room for a moment. I know ladies can be workaholics too, but let me speak to the men. You may say, man, we may say it's all to provide for our families. But what does it matter? If you don't have time to invest in your children, to invest in relationships with other people, to invest in your wife, what does it matter if you're so busy you can't even serve the church and invest in the kingdom? What does it matter? Money, possessions, things you work for, it means nothing in the end if you have nobody to share it with. Listen, no one ever says on their deathbed, I wish I had spent more time in the office. I wish I had made more money. I wish I had spent more time with my children. I wish I'd served the people of God more. Relationships are more important than achievements. So, what are you working for? Which leads us to the right motivation. Motivation number four, contentment. Contentment, look there, verse six. Better, so here's the better life. Here's the good life. Here's the way to live, Solomon says. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after I think a good synonym for quietness there is contentment. This is the person who is content with what they have. Rather than always striving for more, they're satisfied. Verse 6, better is a handful of quietness. So this isn't two handfuls wanting more and more. This, this is one handful of quietness, saying it's enough. This is enough. I, I'm going to work only for what's enough with a view toward other people And Solomon says, that is the meaningful life. That's the purposeful life. So the the person is content with the life God has given them. This isn't the American dream. (laughs) Yes, they work hard, but they don't demand more. they They are content. Friend, have we learned how to be content? Have we learned? To be content in life with what God has given us. Or are you always wanting more? And, and I just want to say to you that this contentment, it can only be found in God alone. It can't be found in achievements and in positions and money. If you remember Paul in Philippians chapter 4, he's speaking from prison. And he says in verse 11, I have learned in whatever situation to be content. First Timothy, he says this. First Timothy 6 Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world but if we have food and clothing sounds awful like like Solomon with these we will be content. So Paul's joy it came from from knowing Christ. Jesus was his life and he learned the value of being content. Are you content with the life God has given you? The Puritan uh, Jeremiah Burroughs In his book, The The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, here's what he says. He says, we learn to find contentment, here's how, by way of subtraction rather than addition. That's good. By way of subtraction, getting stuff out, than by way of addition. He says, the Christian has another way to be content. He can bring his desires down to his possessions. What he has. And then he says, my brethren, the reason why you do not have contentment in the things of the world is not that you do not have enough of them, the reason is because they are not things proportional to your soul. And then he says, only God can give that. And beloved, discontentment in our lives is because we aren't, we aren't truly satisfied in God and it will keep you from investing in God others. It will keep you from meaningful relationships. You're always trying to get rather than give. That's the motivation for our work. It's a love for God and a love for others. You've got one hand to give. Third observation, loneliness. Look there at verses 9 to 12. This is really the, the heart and soul of this chapter. Look what he says there. In fact, notice how often in verses 9 to 12 he mentions the number 1 and the number 2. Notice that as we're reading. Verse 9, two are better than one. Verse 11, how can one keep warm, alone? Verse 12, a man might prevail against one who is alone. So this guy's, this is the person who's all alone. But then notice in contrast the number 2 in verse 9. Two are better, he says. Verse 11, if two lie down together, they keep warm. Verse 12, two will withstand him. And in verse 12, interestingly, we have this number three. <laughs> What's Solomon showing us here? Here's what he's showing us. He's showing us here the blessing of relationships. He says in verse 9, two are better than one. This is the good life. This is the This is the better way to live, Solomon says. This is the way to live with meaning and purpose. This is a good gift from God in your life to be enjoyed. It's relationships in life, community. And I just want you to notice there are four blessings here he gives that that really come in the form of proverbs to show us the the value, the, the, the blessing of relationships. Have you ever thought about the benefit of friendships and companionship in life? Look at these four blessings. Blessing number one, we do more together. Verse nine, two are better than one, why? Because they have a good reward for their toil. So in other words, he's saying we're better together. We, we can do more together. We can accomplish twice as much. Teamwork makes the dream work, right? We're more productive when we're doing it with other people, and, and we have someone else to share it with. And that's true in every sphere of life, right? I mean, in the home, think about it. Moms and dads helping out with activities and things and responsibilities, right? I mean, men, this last week when our wives were at the women's retreat, couldn't wait for her to get home, right? We need help, and it's true in work. We get more done together than if we're alone, but I think this is especially true in the church. I've seen it firsthand in, in the value of a plurality of elders leading a church. right? I can't imagine being a solo pastor. I mean, pastoral ministry can be lonely enough, but the, the blessing of a, of a plurality, a group of people, rather than one. But I, I think it's recognized in the church as well at large when we think about how God has made us as different members, different parts, we all have... Various gifts, and so we can't say we don't need each other, right? First Corinthians chapter 12. We all have to do our part. We all have to contribute. And Paul says that's when the church is going to be healthy. That is when the churches grow. We do more together. Blessing number two, we help each other when we fall. Verse 10. For if they fall, one will help his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Now remember, Solomon, he, he's, he's riding here before the invention of sidewalks and street lamps. You ever tried walking in the dark? And apparently this guy, maybe walking somewhere at night, he's fallen into a pit, and that could be fatal. How's he, how's he going to get out? He needs someone to help him out. One commentator said, this is reminiscent of the commercial, I've fallen and I can't get up, right? He can't get up. Brothers and sisters, we need each other. And if you don't think you need relationships in the church, you are either too proud or you are too naive. We need one another's help. And I don't think he just means here, physical help, we need a brother or sister to pull us out sometimes of the pit of despair, the pit of sin. Galatians chapter 6, remember verse 2, Paul says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We need each other. We need need it. And, And when we see that need in the church and in one another's lives, in this community, we should go to them. We should meet that need. And guess what? If you're too consumed with work, If you're too consumed with being busy with your own interests, you won't be able to help. Blessing number three, we comfort one another. Look at verse 11. We comfort one another. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one man keep warm alone? Now, there's nothing sexual about this verse. No. Solomon here, he's he's probably again referring to maybe travelers sleeping out in the elements on a cold night. Experiences camping? What do you do? <laughs> just press up against each other. It's cold. My wife does this all the time with her cold feet, right? Puts them on it's just awful. That was a joke. You can't get worn alone. He's saying. You need two people to stay warm. And, and I think what the picture here is is of comforting one another. Friends are to be comforters. We, support, we, we provide support. Yes, physical support, physical needs, but I think more than that, emotional support. support. Physical and emotional and spiritual support. He's, he's, he's showing us clearly in this, in this book that life in this sin-cursed world is hard, and so we need the comfort of one another when we're hurting and we're grieving. We come alongside to comfort each other when we're struggling spiritually. We come alongside to admonish and to, to encourage. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. This is the habit of some. We need the church to be encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I love uh, Philip Reich, and he says this, He says, it is easy to grow cold in the Christian life, to become numb to the work of God and eventually to freeze almost to spiritual death. But when we are growing cold, the heat of another Christian can warm us up. The prayer of another, the verse that a friend shares, an exhortation to turn a heart back to God, these are some of the sparks that God will use to keep the fire burning. This is the beauty of relationships in the church, comfort. Look at blessing number four, verse 12. He says, we protect one another. Verse 12, and though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. In other words, he's saying there there is safety in numbers here. So again, the picture here is probably of a man traveling somewhere and he gets jumped by robbers. And if there's just one of them, he doesn't have a fighting chance. But if there's other ones who have his back, he has a much better chance, right? In fact, he says, look in verse 12, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. In other words, one is better than two, but two is even better than that. Or three is even better than that. The more, the better. He's saying, the stronger it's going to be. And again, I think Solomon has in mind here our our spiritual protection. Again, book of Hebrews chapter 3 verse 12 says, take care brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So how do we take care that we don't have an evil, unbelieving heart? He says, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In other words, one of the ways he says that we protect one another in close relationships is by exhorting one another. Every day, he says, as long as it's called today. We need one another to protect one another. So do you have that? Do you have these kinds of Relationships within the body with brothers and sisters this kind of depth to them final observation look there verses 13 to 16 observing humility now th- th- these aren't easy verses um, but it seems that Solomon is still continuing on here with this theme of isolation and the need of other people And I say that because look there at verse 13. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. In other words, he's going to describe here someone who has isolated themselves from advice and wisdom of other people. They're alone. And they need others. They, they need the, the wise counsel of other people in fact they well, here's what they need they need humility so look at verse 13 he goes he goes straight to the top right the king he began with the isolation of the oppressed and now he goes all the way to the level of a king and look at the story verse 13 better was a wise and poor and wise youth so another better statement here's a better way to live better was a poor and wise youth, than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, this young king, though in his own kingdom he had been poor, I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with the youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and striving after wind. So it's the tale of two kings. The first, notice he says, there's this old foolish king who no longer takes advice. This is a bad leader, by the way. This guy, he has cut himself off from listening to the advice and the counsel of others. He is unteachable. And he's been successful, but look at verse 13. He no longer knows how to take advice. And Solomon says, he's a fool. Proverbs 12 says, the way of the fool seems right in his own eyes, but the wise man listens to advice. He's a fool, this man, this king. But there's a second king. Look there, the poor and wise king. Sort of a rags to riches kind of story here. And he, he takes the place there of this old foolish king. Look there, verse 14. He went from prison to the throne, and he amasses this enormous following. Verse 16, there was no end of all the people who followed this king. So he was a great leader, apparently, this young, wise king. Why was he a great leader? He was wise. He listened to advice. counsel. Then in verse 16, look at there, he's gone, this wise king. No, he dies. He doesn't rule forever, and he's forgotten. Verse 16, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and striving after the wind. What does Solomon mean? Two principles, I see here. We'll close with this, two principles. But first, I just want you to notice this. You can be old and still be a fool. Age does not mean wisdom, necessarily. Age doesn't equal wisdom. So I I think this story here should serve as a warning for the older Christians in the room that gray hair doesn't mean you're wise. In fact, there may be some younger people in this church who are wiser than you. Now, what makes you wise, here's what makes you wise. You listen. You're able to take advice. You, you, you receive the counsel of other people. You're teachable. You're willing to learn. You're willing to be corrected. That, that's wisdom. And I think this should also serve as an encouragement to the younger Christians among us That you can be young and you can even be poor and still be wise. Because wisdom says, I have a lot to learn from other people. So principle number one, here it is. We need the wisdom of others. Again, we need relationships. We need each other. We need the wisdom. We need the counsel of one another within the body of Christ. Counseling isn't just for the professionals. This is what we do as Christians. We give counsel and we receive counsel from each other. And lots of ways this happens. Our small group is a great place where this kind of giving and receiving of counsel can happen. Perhaps it means that the more mature in the faith, take a a younger person under their wing. Or maybe that younger in the faith goes to the more mature and says, teach me, help me. I need to learn. We need the wisdom of others. Two or three or four. Better than one. Here's the second principle. Success is fleeting. Success is fleeting. Worldly success is fleeting. And that will affect your work, that will affect your relationships. Verse 16, listen, look at there. For, all, for all, the, all the wisdom, all the success, all, and the, the youth of this king that he had, what happens to him in the end? He still dies. And friend, you will too. There's your reminder again. You're gonna die. Verse 16, Yet those who come after will not rejoice in him. And you're going to be forgotten. I hate to be the one to tell you this. You're really not a big deal. And you will die. Do you realize that? And your success and everything you've worked for, it's going to die with you. So what are you living for? Things that will last, things that will fade away. Are you striving after the wind? or Are you investing in what matters? And what matters is the lives of other people. What matters is souls. What matters is investing in the kingdom of God. As I was wrapping up my study this week, uh, my mind went to the story of William Borden. Everybody knows who William Borden is, right? You should. William Borden, he was born in Chicago in 1887 to the very wealthy Borden family. Yes, that one, the dairy cow family. He was a Yale graduate. Shortly after graduation, he decided to give up the family fortune, to give up the family business, to give up a successful career and become a missionary in China among an unreached Muslim people group. And on the way there to China, only four months after that, he contracted spinal meningitis and he died at the age of 27. Never reaching China. Now what would you say, what would the world say about Borden's life? Wasted. In fact, here's what's engraved on his tombstone. Here lies William Borden. Apart from Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Apart from Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. And brothers and sisters, I pray that that would be true of us. I pray that we would be a church that lives for what matters, that we would live our lives that we would spend our lives investing in others so that other people hear the grace that is found only in Jesus Christ, we would be pouring our lives out for the good of those around us. As Christ did for us, who was equal with God, as we saw, and yet he made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant. He considered others more significant than himself. He was a friend of sinners. He was a comfort to the outcast and the broken. May we live with that sort of selflessness for the good of others. And may we glory in our Savior, who is our greatest treasure. This is the good life. This is the life Solomon's talking about. Live for what matters. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you... the one who was the friend to sinners. Who laid down his life for us. So may we as a people, may we as your people, live for the sake of others. May we recognize the need for what ultimately truly matters in this life. To invest and to pour into the lives of other people. May we use our resources for that. May we use our time for that. May we be content with the life you've given us. And may we live it for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We trust you were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, visit us online at www.secondbaptist-mtv.com or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.